Thank you, Pastor David. Let's uh, look to Acts 9. We'll be reading Acts 9, 1 through 19. This concerns the conversion of Paul. Paul is busy uh, killing Christians, actually. He's traveling from Jerusalem. He's going north to Damascus with every intent to uh, round up Christians, bring them back to Jerusalem, and he meets someone on the way. Acts 9, 1 through 19. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, The Lord who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. Let's pray together. Father, this is one of the most well-known stories in the New Testament. And the consequences of this are still being felt now. You are still changing lives. The work that he did, the letters that he wrote, we're still reading. It's really, it's just awesome to be able to read this and to think about it. It's been a privilege for, for me to think about this Uh, preparing for this, I pray that you would open our eyes to see how great and glorious you are. 
Be with us now in Christ's name. Amen. If you read the Bible, uh, there aren't miracles every page, but there are plenty of miracles. You take someone feeding 5,000 people with a little bit of food. It's pretty amazing. Uh, Taking water, changing it into wine. There are times in the Bible when Christ raises someone from the dead. I mean, that's just amazing. You think of walking on water. It's Sometimes you read these stories, if you've been a Bible reader all your life, and you think, what would that have been like to be there? But I don't think there's any miracle like the one that we just read. That's probably the best miracle in the Bible, and I want to look at you with this. So I want to talk about two terms here, conversion and regeneration. Conversion is, is turning. So we talk about someone that repents and has faith. That's conversion. You're going one way, you repent, and then you go the other way and you have faith in Christ. But something precedes that, and that is regeneration. That is God coming into a person's life And it's deep soul work that the Holy Spirit does so you can repent and have faith. And sometimes we use those terms interchangeably, but there is a distinction in the Bible. So if you'd look at the back of your uh, hymnal, you'll see a a brief outline, and it's really simple. We're just going to look at before Christ, meeting Christ, and then serving Christ. And Paul's conversion is sort of a model or a paradigm uh, for that. And I don't think that we're saying that everyone before Christ is as bad as Saul was. It's not exactly matching up with any person before uh, Christ, but there is some correspondence, and we'll we'll look at this. If you look at the uh, previous chapter in verse 3, you'll see that Paul was filled with violence. Paul was a violent person. It says in 8.3, but Paul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Just think of that. He is going into homes and just dragging people out of their homes. And then in verse 9, the first verse that we read but Paul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Now, this is written by Luke, who's a dear friend of Paul, written years after, but this is what Paul is like. He's kind of like an an animal. He's just breathing threats. I hate to admit it, but sometimes religious people can be violent. If God tells you something, there's really no compromise. When he says something, that's the way it is. And there are passages in the Old Testament where God has used violence before, and admittedly, that makes us uncomfortable. But in the New Testament, there is no reason to use violence in God's name. I mean, I feel like this is the culture that we find ourselves in. We as a nation are regularly killing unborn babies. That is a violent act. And we are expressing ourselves in more violent ways. But that's where Paul was. He was filled with violence. 
Paul was dogmatic, but he was ignorant of God. He said that he went to the high priest and asked him for letters. So he took the initiative. He went to the high priest, and he was probably looking for Jewish people who were in Jerusalem escaping the violence up to Damascus, which is maybe 350 miles or so away from Jerusalem. But he went, and he got those letters, and there was no compromise with him. He was rigid, dogmatic, unyielding in his beliefs. He was inflexible and not listening. And I thought, if this is true, that it seems like the less you know about God, the more dogmatic you are, the more rigid you are, the more inflexible. So he's filled with violence, he's dogmatic but ignorant about God, and he's religious and hateful. He was born in Tarsus. He said that he was a Jew born in Tarsus. That's in, the, in Asia Minor. And he was probably wealthy. He, you know, his family were citizens, so he was born a citizen. But then he said that he was trained under Gamaliel. So he knew the streets of Jerusalem. He knew the people there. And they, in some sense, they probably knew him. But when he talked in uh, Acts 26... He talked to the Jews and he says, you know what I was like. I, I persecuted the way, that is the, the people that were Christians that belonged to the way, which may have come from Christ saying, I'm the way and the truth and the life. As I was binding them and delivering them to prison, both men and women. I mean, he says, the high priest can bear me witness. You all know I did this. And I went to uh, Damascus to bring them back. In 26.11, Luke writes, he quotes Paul, he says, In raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. He was blind with rage. He was filled with violence and hate. Paul is doing something very dangerous. He's combining religion with hate. That is an awful pairing. Anytime you combine religion and hate, bad consequences follow. We never want to ex experience hate or violence and think you're offering service to Jesus Christ. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Paul is lost, but he's moving forward. Paul is very lost spiritually. He is taking a group of people from Jerusalem traveling, it could have been a week or more, and he's leading the charge. He is lost spiritually, but he's got this group of people, and he's going to Damascus. He's got this letter, and he's going to his Jewish friends and say, I've got the authority from the high priest. You tell me where there are Christians, and I'll find them, and I'll bring them back to Jerusalem. He's not close to God at all. He doesn't know the God he thinks he's serving. But as we look at Paul, he's filled with violence, but soon he's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit and love. Right now he's dogmatic, but soon he'll be urging people to follow Christ. He'll be encouraging them. 
He doesn't come across the way he does before Christ, after he knows Christ. You would think he would use his authority, but he doesn't. He's religious but hateful, but soon Paul will be pointing people to Christ, away from keeping the law to get right with God and pointing them to have faith in Christ. He loves the Jews so much, he said he would suffer in hell for their salvation. Paul, the inflexible Jew, would come to absolutely love Gentiles. He was lost but moving forward. Soon he would be found and he would be traveling more than he ever has in his life. And I think that Paul represents a person before they come to Christ. Confused, lost, filled with a spirit, but not filled with a Holy Spirit. Demanding, blind with rage. You may not be like Paul was if you don't know Christ. You, you know, you're not out there killing Christians. But there's a verse in Ephesians 2 that, that I love. He says, talking to believers about when they were not Christians, remember you were at that time having no hope and without God in the world. That's what a person is. Whoever you are, if you do not know Jesus Christ, you don't have hope, and you are without God in the world. It's an awful place to be. So that is Paul before Christ, and now he's meeting Christ. And, and this really is, is the pinnacle of the, of the story in Acts 9. Paul is moving fast. He's got an entourage with him, but he has to be stopped. He is arrested. He is just stopped by the power of God. He's stopped so hard that he falls down. Now, we don't know if he's on a donkey, if he's on a horse, or he's on foot, but he falls down. He might be face down, but he is down for the count. If you look at chapters 22 and 26, these are the other two times when this story is told. So it's, it's told three times in the New Testament. He says it is at noon. Now, for those of you in Michigan, we don't often see the sun. Yesterday, I think it probably existed, but it was hard to see. Around the Mediterranean, it is bright and hot. So just think, they're walking in a hot sun, I would assume, at noon when it's the highest and the hottest and the brightest, and there is a brighter light than the sun. And it stops him. He falls down. We don't know if the others uh, understood what was going, but they were there. The authority of Christ knocks him down, blinds him, and shuts him up. It stops his plan because Christ shows up. Christ overwhelms them, and Christ's authority stops him from one more step in the direction he was going. Paul was determined and would not be stopped until Christ stopped him. He later says that he saw Christ, but in Acts 9, he saw light and he heard sound. Not a hand was laid on Paul. 
But Paul came face to face with a power he had never encountered before. And I remind you, you will come face to face with this God. And everyone here will stand before God and give an account of their lives because it's appointed for man to die once and then the judgment. Every single person will stand before this holy God. So this is a work of God's sovereign will overcoming, overcoming Paul's will. Paul had a will, and so did Christ. And during this process, we don't know exactly when, this is when regeneration takes place. When God, through the power of his Holy, Sp- Holy Spirit, just changed inside of Paul's soul. And he became a new man. That's a result of God's work. So apart from God's work, apart from Christ, we are going the wrong way. We're going the wrong way, we're doing the wrong thing, and we have to be turned around. Ironically for Paul, he kept going the same way, but he went to Damascus in a lot different way than he intended. He went to Damascus with a letter in his pocket. He was filled with rage, but by the time he got closer, he's being led because he can't see. He's a changed man. Now, there's something about Stephen's role in his conversion that I have not quite settled on. At the end of 8, we see Paul and we see some cloaks or some coats at his feet. And Stephen is being stoned and he has this wonderful testimony. He says basically what Christ says on the cross, don't hold this sin against them. And Paul is right there. And and Paul refers to this in Acts 22 and 26. So, usually at this point, a minister or a teacher will say that Stephen prepared Paul for his conversion. Now, it doesn't say that, but it may be. It seems like this is a sudden conversion for Paul. And yet, contrary to that, uh, Christ says to Paul, It's hard for you to kick against the goads. There's something that was going on internally with Paul that he was struggling. He was was kicking against something that God was doing. So Stephen has some impact on him, but it does seem that Paul has a clear conscience. He's, He's doing this, and yet Christ is... Uh, converting him almost out of nowhere. I don't think that Paul is using any kind of back channels to talk to Peter before this conversion. There's no evidence that he talked to any Christians at night or that he had some kind of communication. But as I said, it's a a difficult uh, piece to put together in this story. So he is stopped, and then he listens. When God stops you, the first thing you ought to do is listen. When he was stopped, all Paul said was, Who are you, Lord? (laughs) He didn't know who this was, but he knew he was talking to someone very powerful. He knew that in the middle of the day, he saw a light so bright, 
it knocked him down. He saw a light so bright he couldn't see anymore, and he is totally confused. He meets real authority. He is meeting God in the blinding light and the voice of authority. Paul is not teaching. He's not hating. He's not grabbing people. Paul is listening. He meets real authority. And when you meet real authority, you listen. I don't think Paul said, now wait just a minute. I got a letter here from the high priest. You're not going to stop me. He didn't say anything. He just listened. He didn't question whether or not this voice could boss him around. Because you'll notice that when Paul said, Who are you, Lord? It wasn't like he was Isaiah. He said, Hey, I'll do what you want. No, Christ told him. And this is what you're going to do. You're going to go in Damascus and you'll wait until I tell you what you're going to do. Paul's not telling uh, Christ what he will and will not do. So he stopped, he listened, and did he learn? What does Paul learn? And what do we learn when we're regenerated or converted? We learn about God. That's the main thing. So the first thing that Paul learns, or I use Paul, but it's Saul until his name is changed, that God is personal and that he knows Saul. He says to him, Saul, Saul. It's a very personal expression. He knows what Saul is doing. Saul first realized, God knows my name. God knows what I am doing. And he's he realizes that this Jesus, who he thought was dead, was very much alive. And this voice is speaking to him and telling him to stop. He's ordering him what to do. And he's learning that this Christ identifies with Christians that he is trying to kill. So Paul is realizing, I am opposing God. In just a few seconds, Paul realizes that this trip that I am on to Damascus is opposing God. The persecution of Christians that I am adamant, I'm dedicated to, that's opposing God. My teaching, the teaching that I have been doing, that I have learned, is opposing God. I am abusing God. And Paul might say, and I am totally lost. The sight of Christ blinded Paul, but soon he would see clearer than he ever did in his life. In fact, even when he was blinded, he saw clearly for the first time in his life. So that's before Christ. Then we saw meeting Christ and now serving Christ. Now granted, uh, Acts 9 does not really go into all the part of Paul serving Christ. So we're extrapolating uh, slightly. But the first part is he's in a sort of a wilderness experience. And if you're a Bible reader, wilderness in the Bible means that's where a person goes to meet God. So that's Moses, that's Joshua, that's Elijah, 
That's John the Baptist and Christ. And Paul is in a sort of a wilderness experience because he's blind. He's not eating. Now later, I think it's in verse 23 of this same chapter, I think that's actually where he goes into Arabia because he spends three years in somewhere in Arabia in some wilderness, and we assume he is studying and thinking and going over all the things that, that he thought. I had a professor at seminary, I'll never forget this, he said, because this is, when you go to seminary, everybody wants to preach. So we all think that we're just going to set the world on fire. He said, if you want to stand up and speak, you need to first sit down and study. And that's what, that's what Paul does. He, he needs time to step back, to rethink and study again. The Holy Spirit is leading him onto new truths. And so he's, we read Romans and Galatians and all his letters, and that's the fruit of him first studying under Gamaliel, and then now the Holy Spirit reteaching. He's relearning. Don't ever apologize for reading and thinking and meditating. You need to carve out time to just think, to study, to reflect, to read, compare notes, study the Bible, study secondary literature. And I'll put in a quick plug for our 9 a.m. classes. If you ate as much as you probably eat, uh, that is, studying the Bible, you'd be pretty hungry. If you just come on Sunday morning, that's not enough. We have classes for kids and classes for adults. And I really feel it's a great opportunity that you should take advantage of, if you can. I know that everybody can't. So he has this wilderness experience, and then he has Christ's command. So he says to him, who are you? And he, it, Jesus identifies himself. I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. And now he says, rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. <laughs> now, Christ knows exactly what's going to happen to Paul. He does not tell him. <laughs> he just tells him, you just go and wait for me. And Paul does. He is... He is sent. That's what we mean by an apostle. So the one who Paul thought was dead is now commanding Paul, and Paul is obeying. You just wonder when he's led by the way, if he's thinking, what is going on? Why am I, why am I doing this? He was the one leading this group, and now they're leading him by the hand. He was going to Damascus to kill the Christians. Now he's going to Damascus so he can see. He's got a whole new life. We serve a God who speaks, who commands, who demands, and he tells us his expectation for our life. We don't have a spirituality where you can just do whatever you want. 
If you want that kind of spirituality, you are not going to find it in Christianity. God is a speaking God. He's a talking God. He's a loving God, but He is a commanding, demanding God. And we serve that God. And the Gospel demands your life. All of your life. Every part of you. Nothing is held back. And we see that in Paul's life, not just in Acts 9. And you can't please God unless you're a living sacrifice. That everywhere you go, you're burning. You're living out a life that is pleasing to God. You don't tell Christ what you will and will not do. He commands you and He tells you what you will do. It's interesting to see the church's role. So, here's Paul going to Damascus to to destroy the church. And now Christ tells Ananias, I need you. And he tells him where to go, whose house, and it's the church that welcomes Paul in. i got to tell you a quick story. Um, First church I was at, a friend of mine called me and said, I'm afraid right now. I don't know what my husband's going to do. And I, I just don't know what to do. So I got in my car. They were good. They were close friends. Got in my car and I drove over there. And as I'm driving over, I'm thinking, this may not be the smartest thing you've ever done, Mark. But I thought, well, what am I going to do? Just not go? And if you haven't noticed, I'm not the biggest guy in the world. And this gentleman was pretty good sized. And uh, I admit, I, of course, I prayed, you know, but I went into the house and I said, It's Pastor Mark. Like, don't run me over. The end of that story is kind of sad, but good. Um, he, he, was, he was and is a good friend. And. He was at his kitchen table just kind of weeping. So it was really nothing. But I I thought of that when I thought of Ananias. So Ananias, I think, I don't want to read into this, I think when Christ tells him to go, Ananias said, I don't know if you know who this person is. But you see, it's not safe. So you may think it's okay, but it could be a trap. And God just says, go. He's a chosen instrument of mine. And Ananias, to his credit, he just leaves. He just does whatever God wants. And I love the tenderness of this moment when Ananias sees Saul. He lays his hands on him and he welcomes him into the church by saying, Brother Saul. I just wonder if Paul and Ananias talked about that moment the rest of their lives. It's the first moment when Paul was welcomed into the church by a a godly man, and he called him Brother Saul. You know, if you were there, you might say, well, wait a minute, he's not a brother yet. Yeah, he was. 
Paul came to love that church so deeply. And I think we forget what a radical change it was in Paul's life to love Gentiles the way he did. And Jews. He understood when Jews were upset and hateful at him because he said, I was just like you. For an inflexible Jew to want to worship with a Gentile is not something we can easily understand. Because to a Jew, you brought in people who obeyed the law, who lived a life that was pleasing to God. But if you brought in Gentiles, these people were homosexuals, they were immoral, they went to these baths, they did all this awful stuff, they didn't tell the truth, they didn't know God. Worship with them? Uh Uh-uh. But Paul is the one who brought them into the church. So, in Acts 20, Paul is near the end of his life. He's on his his way to Rome. And he's in a little town called Miletus, not far from Ephesus. He he calls the Ephesian elders to come over here and and to say goodbye. And he, he talks to them one more time. It's just, it's one of the most moving, the most tender moments in in Paul's life. And he says in all this, he, he gives them warnings, he gives them encouragement, and he says, you probably won't see my face again. And at the end of it, they're hugging Paul, and Paul is hugging them. They're loving Paul, and Paul is loving them. They're kissing Paul, and Paul is kissing them. The very man who tried to destroy those Christians now love this guy. It's a changed life for that man. You know, the church will always play a central role in the life of the believer. It's not an add-on. It's not something that you can dispense with. I'm sure you've heard ministers like I've heard them say, when it comes to conversion, they'll say something like this. I'm talking about your relationship with Christ, not the church. Now, I understand the distinction that they're making. But there is no Christ apart from the church. Christ is the head of the church. And you cannot know Christ apart from the church. I agree with uh, Cyprian He said, you cannot have God for your father if you do not have the church as your mother. So, you don't want to confuse the priority of of Christ over attendance in a church or membership. But Christ died for the church. He feeds the church. He cares for the church. And you have to be a part of that church to know Christ. So Paul is also called an instrument in this passage. He says, uh, Christ says to Ananias in verse 15, he's a chosen instrument of mine. He's going to carry, he's going to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and children of Israel. 
And then maybe this was an encouragement for Ananias to go, and by the way, he's going to suffer. But let me break this down a bit. Um, first of all, he's, he's an instrument. I mean, isn't it great to be used by God? We don't like to be used by people, but you can be used by God. God wants to use you. I'm not saying you need to be a missionary or you need to be a pastor. That's not what this means. God uses you in whatever area of life you're in. God wants to use you. So every believer, whether you're in China or Russia or Peru, Malawi, Indonesia, you could be used by God. He says he's a chosen instrument. I was thinking about the things that I chose. I chose my wife. That's a person I wanted to be with. We chose our house. I chose my dog. I don't choose everything in life, but some things I chose. God chooses people. He chose Paul. Of all the people he could have used, God chose Paul. And he chose you if you're a believer. You're wanted by God. God chose you. He wanted you. You didn't do anything to deserve that. He didn't see something in you to cause him to choose you. Your election is unconditional. In other words, we use that phrase to say, I wasn't looking down the corridors of time and seeing that if If he chose you, then you would do these things. No, he chose you for his own purpose. And he said he's a chosen instrument of mine. God says about Paul, he's mine. Ananias, you go, he's mine. I will change his life. And he says that about you. God has plans for you. God rejects certain people. It's maybe hard to admit that or, or to, to grasp that, but, but at least you can say he passes by people and he chooses some. I don't think he's choosing a lot of people in Hollywood. I wouldn't know, but I don't think there's evidence of that. Certainly there are some that are believers. This is not a crowd of people God is saying, those are my people. But if you know Christ, God says, you're mine. Paul was rejected by so many people, but he was mine. And he was to to bear or carry his name. And there were three areas that he said. First of all, God said he would carry his name before Gentiles. It was because of this inflexible Jew who tried to destroy the church that all these Gentiles came into the church. Now, it's hardly... I don't know if there's any kind of a Jewish flavor internationally in the, in the church. I mean, if you're in China, you would say, they did say the church was Western. Now imagine that. It came from the nation of Israel... But in terms of where China used to see, and I think still does see, Christianity, it's Western influence. But Paul brought all these Gentiles in. 
he is telling his story in Acts 22, and he gets to the part where God says, Go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles, and the Jewish people just go nuts. They say, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. That's, that's the kind of milieu that Paul grew up with, and he imbibed. He, he embraced that. And he's the one bringing Gentiles in, saying, this gospel is for you. God wants you to be included. He certainly spoke before kings. Uh, if you go in the last part of Acts, he's talking to to Felix, to Festus, to King Agrippa. He is, he is speaking in front of all these people. And maybe without him, they wouldn't have heard the gospel. We don't know. But, but what he really loves to do is speak to Jews. He has such an affinity for Jewish people. He is Jewish. He said, I was born in Tarsus, yes, but I grew up in Jerusalem. I know what you're thinking when he would talk to a Jewish audience. I was just like you. I know. I know the zeal that you feel. I know how you feel about the law. I know how you feel about the temple. But can't you see I'm pointing to something that all these things were pointing to? I understand you, and that's why I want to tell you the gospel. But they rejected him, that is, many of the Jews rejected him just like they rejected God. And finally, uh, he was told that he would have to suffer. He was told how much and why for the name. So I was thinking about Paul, and I was thinking, well, let's say, I don't know that Paul ever went swimming, but let's say you were going swimming with the Apostle Paul, and he took his shirt off, and you saw his back, you would say, Paul, what happened to your back? Because five times he was whipped, and each time he was whipped, it was 40 minus 1, 39 times. 40 would just about kill someone, so they did it at 39. He did that five times times. You ever seen pictures of black slaves in our country? I've seen a picture of a um, man's back. Just awful. That's Paul. So I was having trouble falling asleep last night. I thought, could he sleep on his back? I just don't know how that heals. And (laughs) I, I can imagine many of the times when Paul is speaking, there's bruises on his body. Maybe there's blood. You ever talk to someone that's going through some kind of a medical procedure and you, and you hug them or about to hug them and say, be careful. I mean, with Paul, you wouldn't know when you could hug him. What was sore? He was probably limping half the time. He needed a medical doctor to, to be around with him. He's always getting beat up. He was a tough man. Some ministers said that wherever I go, they have tea. Wherever Paul went, they had a riot. In fact, Paul boasted about his weaknesses. This is, uh, this is him talking about 2 Corinthians 11. He says, I know there are great speakers, and, and I'm not a great speaker. 
but this is what I am. I'm just a weak person. This is my credentials for being an apostle of Christ. He said, I've been in far greater labors, talking about these other great speakers, far more imprisonments, countless beatings. I've lost track of the number of times I've been beat, often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Five times. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. And let me just say, stoning is not you take a little pebble that you can skip on the lake. No, you're, you're taking big rocks that you can barely pick up and you're dropping it on people because you're trying to kill that person. And if you're being stoned, you're protecting your head. That's what Paul went through. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. That's a lot of suffering. And he did that for the name of Jesus Christ. You know, this audience is probably mostly, mostly found. Um, you know Christ, but some of you don't. There are certainly some people that don't. I went to church as a young kid, and I did not know Christ. I knew of him. And you may be that way. You, you know of him. You know some of the stories. You may not be able to find out where a verse is, but you know enough. And you're basically bored. Christ has no value to you. You delight in other things. You want to talk about other things. You're interested in other things. And those things may be okay. Yeah, I still like sports. Uh, you may be a grown person and you're involved in your work and just, they don't have time for this. It doesn't interest me. But when the Bible speaks, God speaks. And when Christ speaks, God speaks. And Christ said, you must be born again. You have to have this change. Now, it doesn't have to be as radical as Paul's. It could be slow. It could be private. So we don't want to say you have to experience Paul. But you must have this change when Christ changes your life. This is what, uh, in Acts 26, what Jesus said to Paul. This is really what being regenerated or born again is to open their eyes. In other words, you're not, you'd be able to walk out of this building to find your car. But spiritually, if you don't know Christ, you're, you're blind. It's maybe hard to admit, but you are. So that they may turn from darkness to light. And from the power of Satan to God, 
that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in Christ. So, what if at the end of your life, you miss the most important part of life? Just think of that. You know, in our culture, when you do a funeral or go to a funeral, we believe in our culture that you are justified by death. In other words, in our Christian faith, we say you're justified by grace alone through faith alone in Christ. That is not the way the culture thinks. I, I've rarely heard a non-believer say that when someone dies, they're not going to heaven. Almost everybody thinks they are. If there's a heaven, there's a hell. And if you are an eternal being, you might even remember sermons like this in hell. You might remember people who tried to talk to you about Christ. And if you're not accountable to someone, your life does not count. So just a few thoughts to gather. God can save anyone. You know, sometimes we kind of forget that. Like, I, I have to admit, if I'm praying for some international leader, I think, well, they'll never be a Christian, and I don't pray that they'd be born again. But God can save anyone. Some of us have family members that are so opposed to the faith, maybe a, a child, maybe a, a aunt or uncle, a parent, and we think they'll never come to faith. Well, they might. Regeneration can be slow. That's the opposite of, of this story. In this story, regeneration was fast and sudden and unexpected. But it could be slow. I think Paul's conversion is paradigmatic. In other words, it's a model or a paradigm. But I don't think it's paradigmatic in the sense that everybody has to follow Paul's example. There are elements that certainly are. Again, going beyond um, Acts 9, uh, James in the New Testament, the book of James, said that you can tell if you have experienced Christ's new life if your life shows it. And so that's a challenge for those of you who are born again. I love looking at this original story, this initial event when Christ was changed. Sorry, when, when Paul was changed by Christ. But what's even better is to look at Paul's whole life. And there's no doubt he had a conversion because he loved people so much. He was so committed to Christ. And, and that's really what we're trying to promote here. Yes, we want conversions and we want baptisms. I think a healthy, growing church would not just bring people in from other churches, but would have baptisms where people are converted. I've never experienced a church like that in my whole life. I've never seen multiple people being born again needing to be baptized. I'd love to be a part of that. I would absolutely love it. But you need to change that self-love, sin-loving, God-hating part of your life 
But what comes after that, that joy, loving to serve God, that's what we want. And to experience that is, is a wonderful thing in life. You know, our culture thinks that being a Christian is, is a bad thing. What hope is there apart from Christ? I haven't found any. But it is a wonderful thing to experience every day the presence of God in your life, no matter what you do, no matter how old you are. And those of you who are younger, I don't know if you're going to have opportunities when you get older to know Christ. You may soon, you may soon be hardened. Because we have had younger people in our church that after they go to college and leave, they're done with anything to do with faith. We know those people. You have to be careful that if God is speaking to you and He's impressing things upon you, that you respond. Because that's not promised to you. But what a privilege it is to know Christ. What? There's nothing better in this life. I'm telling you, there's, there's nothing better. You can have the greatest car, the greatest home, the greatest spouse, the greatest family. It is not enough. You were made for God. You were made to serve Him and to love Him. That's what you're made for. Not to be a missionary or a minister, but what you are in your calling. To love God with all of your heart, soul, strength, mind. It is something that we wish for every single person. And if you don't know Christ, if you're not quite sure, Yes, we have elders that are up here. You don't need to talk to someone specifically like a minister or an elder. But you do need to talk to God. You do need to talk to Him and say, I want you in my life. You know, we can say words that you should repeat and that would be, that would be fine. But try using your own words and say, I'm not going the same way anymore. I've had enough of that. You could be 16 and, and had enough of sin. Or you could be 60. But you do need to come to a point when you know this Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the example of the Apostle Paul. And Christians will always love these stories of conversions. We will probably always be somewhat, uh, I don't want to say pushy, but we'll always want to see people be born again. And that is an expression that is in the Bible, and we embrace it and love it. But it just refers to having a new life. And Lord, we do want every person that comes to our church to know the life and the love that you give to us we want that uh, love to be experienced in our lives every day. We want to grow in that. We don't want to just stay. We want to keep growing in our relationship with you. Lord, I thank you that there are many people in this room who know and love you. And they, they love to hear this story as much as anyone. So Lord, I thank you that your Holy Spirit is with us. You're always willing to forgive us. And I thank you for this true story of Paul's conversion. We pray this now in Christ.